welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. There can't be a crisis this week. My schedule is already full, the US diplomat Henry Kissinger once said. Now, why didn't Theresa May think of that? Dennis Staunton, our London editor, joins us in a moment for an assessment of the British Prime Minister's troubles. How long can she remain in office? Later, Derek Scully will be on to talk about this. That, in case you didn't recognise it, was a group of people in Warsaw at the weekend creating what one government minister described as a very good atmosphere. Meanwhile, one can only surmise what the atmosphere is like at the dinner table in 10 Downing Street these days. But you'd have to suspect it's not a barrel of laughs. From difficulties over Brexit, to allegations of sexual harassment at Westminster, to Boris Johnson's foot and mouth disease, British Prime Minister Theresa May could be forgiven for seeing political life as one damn thing after another. Dennis Staunton is on the line to help us make sense of it all. Dennis, it's arguable that none of the difficulties I alluded to there could be described as being Theresa May's fault. And yet there is this pervading sense that her grip on power is growing more tenuous by the day. Why is that? Well, I think you're right. A lot of the stuff that's happened to her is not directly her fault. I mean, some of it is in that uh, if you go back to the, you know, the, really the main cause of a lot of her recent troubles is she decided to have an election earlier this year, which she didn't need to have. The idea was she was going to increase her majority, instead of which she lost seats and lost her majority. And it's now depending on the DUP to keep her in power. But since then, lots of other things have gone wrong. You had this uh, speech at the Conservative Party conference where everything went wrong. She lost her voice with a fit of coughing. The lettering fell off the sign behind her. Uh, a man uh, came up and offered her a P45. And none of that was her fault, but it reinforced this sense of uh, of somebody who, you know, who really didn't have uh, good fortune on their side and for whom nothing could go right. And so uh, she had just about got out of that. And uh, then we had this succession of revelations about sexual harassment, uh, in Westminster, including by some of uh, of her uh, MPs and ministers. And so uh, you had two resignations in the space of a week. You had the Defence Secretary, Michael Fallon, who was accused of uh, of inappropriate behaviour with, uh, with a journalist some time ago. And then, uh, so he resigned uh, on the basis that uh, he said that there may have been other occasions where he had behaved in a way that might have been regarded as uh, OK a few years ago, but wouldn't be all right nowadays. And then Priti Patel, who was the uh, International Development Secretary, she had to resign because she went on holidays to Israel during the summer. And while she was there, she was there for 13 days. And during uh, the 13 days, she had 12 meetings with um, senior figures in Israel, including Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister. So, uh, but anyway, the problem is she didn't tell anybody about uh, having these meetings. She appeared to be freelancing on foreign policy. It all emerged uh, subsequently. And then when she gave an account of it, she apparently didn't give a full account of it, either to Theresa May or indeed to the media. So she had to go. And uh, and so uh, and then at the same time you have uh, this uh, case uh, you know surrounding um, Theresa May's effective deputy prime minister who is uh, Damien Green, one of her oldest friends. She's known him since her university days, and probably the person she trusts most 
uh, in, within uh, her own cabinet, which isn't really saying all that much. But anyway, he was also accused of having brushed the knee of um, of a journalist uh, some time ago. And uh, then this has been compounded by uh, revelations by the police that they found. They claimed that they found pornography on his uh, computer at Westminster when they were investigating something else, again, some years ago. So he's under investigation, and there's a danger that he might go as well. And then on top of all of that, you have this uh, problem that Boris Johnson has walked the government into, because there's uh, a woman called Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe. She's a dual uh, British-Iranian citizen. And last year, she went on holidays to Iran to uh, to show her uh, her young child to her uh, relatives over there, uh, to introduce them. And on her way back, as she was getting onto the plane, she was arrested, and she was charged with uh, trying to topple the regime in uh, in Iran. And she was convicted and sentenced to five years. But she was due to be eligible for parole at the end of this month. Uh, until uh, a, a few weeks ago, uh, Boris Johnson went into the Foreign Affairs Select Committee and he said, well, what was she doing over there anyway? All she was doing was she was training journalists. Uh, now, Ms. Sagari Radcliffe, she works for um, or had worked as an administrator for Thomson Reuters, uh, who do do journalistic training, but she hadn't actually been doing that. She was just on holidays. So uh, the Iranian authorities seized on this, brought her back in and said that they were now going to considering further charges uh, about uh, you know, which could leave her uh, in jail for another five years. And so her husband, uh, naturally enough, is very distressed about this. Apparently, she's also uh, physically unwell and she's uh, you know, in an emotional state. Boris Johnson initially uh, refused to withdraw these remarks. And then finally, uh, yesterday, he went into Parliament and he did apologise and he said he was wrong and that it was quite clear that she was just going to uh, going on holiday. Uh, so anyway, back, all of these things. Yeah, and I'll come back yes. to that in a moment, Dennis, that, that, that particular controversy. Um, but again, I suppose we're back to the question of blame. I mean, none of these, none of these issues you've outlined can really be laid at her door. But I, I suppose is the issue that if a stronger prime minister who hadn't kind of tossed away their majority at a at an unnecessary general election would have been in a stronger position to deal with these issues and maybe even to force resignations at an earlier stage uh, where they were called for. I think that's right. So I think, for example, uh, a stronger prime minister would have sacked Boris Johnson for making a mistake which has endangered the welfare of a British citizen abroad. And as foreign secretary, it is quite clearly, if anything is a sacking offence, that is. A stronger prime minister would have probably been quicker about sacking Priti Patel and instead of allowing her to resign would simply have sacked her. And I think also uh, in terms even of the handling of uh, the resignation of uh, Michael Fallon and his replacement, she replaced him with um, with the chief whip, Gavin uh, Williamson, who had been who was actually the man who was supposed to find you know, make a suggestion about the replacement. And so the, his suggestion apparently was himself. And again, uh, she did this partly because. She felt that uh, she needed somebody that she trusted, and there were so few people that she does trust. And then there's also this strange thing where she feels that she has to balance the cabinet between Remainers and Brexiteers. So that I think all of it, it is, you're right, part of it is that uh, these all shine 
a light once again on the weakness of her position. The fact that she's she knows she's only there until such time as uh, really the Brexiteers decide that they want to get rid of her. And, and the moment they do that, they, they make that decision, then she's gone. And, uh, and of course, you also saw, in a way, the weakness when it comes to this question of the, uh, the, of Brexit and of the EU withdrawal bill, which is this piece of legislation which they're starting to debate in the House of Commons today and will be for two days every week until Christmas. And, uh, and again, she found herself, this is you know, quite a difficult piece of legislation. What it really does is that it transposes all EU laws into British law. Uh, so that in time for Brexit and then Britain can decide kind of which bits it wants to keep and which it wants to get rid of. And it also is the thing that effectively repeals the legislation that brought Britain into the common market in 1973. And so it is the thing that really triggers uh, Brexit actually happening. Now, she, under pressure from uh, Brexiteers, suddenly announced last Friday that she was going to uh, add an amendment to this which would name a date and would say on the bill that Britain was going to leave at 11 p.m. on the night of uh, the 29th of March 2019. And this has infuriated all of the uh, Conservative Remainers, who had a very angry meeting last night with, uh, with the Chief Whip, because uh, what this does is it effectively means that no matter what happens in the negotiations, you can't extend uh, the negotiations you can't extend article 50 you can, like even by a month or two you can't so it, it cuts it means that even if there is no deal even if a deal could be available within a few weeks that britain will have to leave on that date it certainly doesn't so strengthen that, their hand in the negotiations you would have thought no, it doesn't. And indeed, you, know, you could argue that one of the big mistakes she made from the strategic point of view was in, set, in triggering Article 50 so early so that she set the clock ticking before really she had her various ducks in a row so that, you know, and, and the clock is very much against Britain in all of this. But still, what the uh, I was talking to one of the Tory rebels this morning uh, who said the problem is her weakness and also the vacuum at her own centre, at the centre of Theresa May herself, and that whoever is, uh, is strongest or most threatening will fill that vacuum, and that is the Brexiteers. And uh, so I think she's facing a number of rebellions. There are, you know, there's uh, almost 500 amendments have been tabled from all uh, all parties, including some conservatives. Now they'll probably choose six or seven of those, and one or two of those will see some conservative rebels joining forces with the opposition. And what are the other major flashpoints? What are the other points that are going to cause difficulties um, for her and the government? I think there's a, there are a couple. There's one, uh, an amendment by uh, Dominic Grieve, who is a conservative former uh, attorney general. And, uh, and this amendment would uh, also uh, determine what happens at the very end of the process. And effectively, what it would do would be it would give Parliament a, a meaningful vote at the very end where they could say, uh, you know, not only do we not accept your deal, whatever deal you negotiated, but actually uh, we also will not trigger the departure of Britain from the European Union until such time as we're happy with, with whatever you've negotiated. Because uh, the current situation is basically that they can have a vote, uh, but that if they vote uh, against the deal, that Britain is going to leave anyway. And so they'd essentially be voting to crash out of the European Union without a deal. That's one. Another one is a Labour amendment, which is wanting to put into the, uh, the legislation uh, some uh, the terms of a transition arrangement, basically saying that for 
period of at least two years after Britain leaves that you'll have a standstill arrangement. Britain remains in the single market, remains in the customs union and remains subject to the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice. Now, there's another area which I think you'll probably find the government will compromise on. This is these so-called Henry VIII clauses, which uh, allows government ministers to uh, to do uh, you know, to effectively amend legislation without going through proper parliamentary processes. I think they'll find some compromise on that one. And and um, moving from there to the negotiations then on Brexit on the on the terms of the Brexit. Um, uh, deal, Dennis. The, the, as we know, there was a the first phase of the talks, which included the Irish border question and the issue of the the Brexit bill, the the, the bill that Britain would pay on departure, was due to finish in October. That was extended until December. Um, we've had a lot of um, information over the past week or two about the difficulties that the Irish border question is posing. Is there now a sense, or what's your sense of um, the likelihood of a first phase? Not a deal, but of the first phase being concluded by December, or is that now even looking increasingly unlikely? I think uh, certainly, I, from what I understand from Brussels, uh, the, the Commission is certainly preparing for the possibility of no deal, and certainly for the possibility that you're not going to that they're not going to conclude that there is sufficient progress in December, and so that you won't move on to phase two. I think here in Britain, they feel that if uh, Theresa May is able to make an extra offer in terms of the money, if they're prepared to offer a bit more on the Brexit bill, that that will probably persuade the Europeans to allow talks to move on to the second phase. Now, on the Irish border, uh, uh, the uh, the government really has been quite hard line on that here in London in the sense that they're saying we cannot possibly talk about the border really in terms of the future of it until we know what the final trading deal is going to be. So David Davis yesterday, for example, in Parliament said, look, if we have a free trade agreement, which means that we're going to more or less have a very good close customs arrangement, customs agreement, then that means that there aren't really going to be major problems on the Irish border. If, on the other hand, uh, we're out, we're having WTO rules, obviously then it's more difficult, but I'm sure he said, you know, we can work it out some way. Now, obviously, what Ireland is saying is we actually need more than that in terms of reassurances about what you're prepared to do. Britain has absolutely ruled out the idea of uh, having a border effectively in the Irish Sea because they say that you can't possibly have uh, any kind of a border within the United Kingdom, uh, separating Northern Ireland from the rest of the United Kingdom. And of course, their thinking here is also informed by the fact that they depend on the votes of the DUP to stay in power. And there's been a lot of spinning going on in recent days, hasn't there? Perhaps um, blaming the Irish government for an apparently sort of new hardline position, but really the positions of both sides have been clear, you know, for some time, haven't they? (laughs) Yeah, I think that they, uh, you know, so they, they, they seem to be surprised by what they regard as, uh, you know, as a new tone in Ireland. And of course, there is a new tone because actually, Enda Kenny had a much more emollient tone in terms of what he was saying. So he may essentially have been saying the same things, but it didn't, didn't sound the same when it was coming from Enda Kenny and Charlie Flanagan, as it does from the rather. Uh, cold-eyed duo of uh, Leo Varadkar and uh, and Simon Coveney, who really are much a much more unsmiling uh, team to be dealing with from uh, you know uh, from the British point of view. So I think uh, you know, and I'm not sure that that uh, that here in uh, at Westminster that they're entirely 
convinced that the Irish are serious about this. I mean, I think that they're mistaken because it seems to me that the Irish really are serious about it and that and I think probably are right to be serious about it because this is the moment of maximum leverage for Ireland on the border. The moment that, uh, that it moves into phase two then Ireland's demands don't just, you know, they're no longer one of the three priorities. They're just in the general mix uh, with everything else. And once you get into the business of trade negotiations uh, and the future relationship, then everybody, uh, all the 27 have have their own thing that they care about. And uh, and so so I think Ireland is probably right to be uh, to be tough right now. So I think that uh, yeah, the, for most of them here in Britain uh, and at Westminster, they think that the big issue still is about the money. And here again, Again, Theresa May is under pressure from some of her Brexiteers, uh, particularly say, oh, and uh, uh, Ian Duncan Smith was out today uh, saying that she had to be, he'd be very wary about giving uh, much more. Other Eurosceptics, like, for example, Michael Gove, seem to be a bit more relaxed about the money. Now, yeah, that's a, you mentioned Michael Gove, um, Dennis, and I said I would come back to the controversy over um, the Nazanin Nagari Ratcliffe, the British um, woman in jail in Iran. Now, it's not just Boris Johnson, of course, who has um, uh, kind of put his foot in his mouth in, in this one. Michael Gove uh, gave an interview the weekend to the BBC's Andrew Marr. One of the most important stories today, which is Miss Zahari Radcliffe, yes. um, in a terrible condition in an Iranian prison. What was she doing when she went to Iran? Uh, I don't know. Um, uh, one of the things I, I, I want to stress is that um, uh, there is no reason... Um, so there you had, uh, uh, just I suppose at a time when the British government was trying to get a grip on this controversy, Michael Gove going um, off script and saying he didn't know why she was in Iran when in fact it's really, I think, clearly established that she was on holiday. Now, as you mentioned, Dennis, Boris Johnson did finally apologise uh, yesterday for his gaffe. So um, in, in this context, is this... Is that particular controversy put to bed now, do you think? Uh, no, I, I think it's not. I mean, I think it depends very much on what happens. I think that if uh, the Iranians do extend uh, uh, Nazarene Zaghari Radcliffe's sentence or uh, charge her with something else and keep her in jail for longer, then I think Boris Johnson will be held responsible. And I think his position then really does come, uh, you know, there will be a big question about it. And it was noticeable yesterday when he was making his statement in the House of Commons, on the benches behind him, if you looked at the body language, uh, there was a, uh, there was no real patience for him. I mean, they, uh, they were loyal enough, most of them, in terms of what they said. But they really do feel as if... Um, you know this. Uh, you know this was a thoroughly irresponsible thing to do. And Michael Gove, who has now reformed this alliance with Boris Johnson, uh, you know he seemed to be uh, Marta, you know, wading into this to support Johnson. But I do think that it really does depend very much on what happens. Now, the uh, Boris Johnson has suggested he's meeting. Um, uh, the, the Miss uh, Zachary Radcliffe's, uh, Radcliffe's husband tomorrow, and he has suggested that he would consider offering what they call diplomatic protection. Now, this is something quite different from diplomatic immunity or diplomatic status. What it means is that uh, what they would be saying to the Iranians is that we no longer are de dealing with this as a consular case, but actually as a legal case between our two states. Now, one of the, the reasons they might do that is that uh, for the Iranians, they, like many other countries, don't recognize the idea of dual citizenship. What they say is that if somebody is a dual citizen and they commit an offense, 
uh, here in our jurisdiction, where they're also a citizen, then they're going to be treated as an Iranian citizen. And so as far as they're concerned, uh, she is an Iranian citizen and it's none of Britain's business. And so what uh, what this move would do, if, if they were to take it, would be effectively to escalate the dispute. But again, there's no guarantee that uh, that, that will succeed. And, uh, you know, the branches, uh, the judicial branch is quite separate from, uh, from the government in Iran. And so even going through diplomatic channels is not clear how successful they're going to be. So I think Boris Johnson's fate depends very much on the fate of Nazarene Sagari Ratcliffe. And um, how much damage do you think he's done to his own? I mean, if, if he does still have leadership ambitions and his name is certainly sort of coming back into that uh, sort of discussion in recent weeks. Um, do you think himself and Michael Gove have kind of hold themselves below the waterline this time? Well, I think it's certainly damaging to him because it reinforces doubts that you had about him. I mean, all these things, you know, scandals or whatever it is, they tend to be more damaging if they reinforce a doubt that people have about you anyway. And there had been this sense that he was a bit of a dilettante, that uh, he, uh, you know, he's too loose-tongued to be uh, foreign uh, secretary and that he's not that he's simply not a serious enough figure to occupy one of the great offices of state. Now, if he's not serious enough to be foreign secretary, he's not serious enough to be prime minister. Having said all of that, if something else goes wrong for Theresa May, and it could be anything, I mean, as you say, there's really one every week. So if the next thing that goes wrong is something there where she simply can't survive it and she's gone, one of the things, if you talk to Tory MPs, that they will say is very few people want this job. And in the last few weeks, a couple of potential contenders have been taken out of the picture. So Michael Fallon was regarded as a safe pair of hands, not a particularly safe pair of hands, as it were now. And, uh, you know, in the same way, uh, Priti Patel might have thought she was a contender. You know, so that actually the fact that the cast of potential uh, you know, rivals for this, uh, this office has reduced might indeed, uh, you, know, uh, you know, elevate the chances of uh, Boris or indeed of Gove himself, who, if you remember, he stabbed Boris Johnson in the back uh, in the last leadership election and decided that instead of running Boris's campaign, he was going to run himself and then uh, didn't succeed. And uh, it was Theresa May in the end. So, so I think um, it, it's probably too soon to write any of them off. And certainly it's, it's almost always too soon to write Boris Johnson off, but, off, but he's certainly damaged himself over this particular, uh, you know, this particular problem because it's something that has real human consequences that are visible to all to see. Okay, we'll watch this space. Dennis, thanks for that. Thanks very much. Talk soon. It is just over two years now since the deeply conservative Law and Justice Party secured a landslide victory in a general election in Poland. Since then, the party has steered Poland through a strong economic recovery that has seen living standards rise and unemployment fall to record lows. But the party has also taken Poland in a direction that many say is at odds with the values and democratic norms espoused by the European Union of which it was once seen as a model member. The party is perceived to have undermined the independence of the judiciary and to have instigated attacks on media freedoms. And at the weekend, thousands of right-wing extremists marched through Warsaw in a demonstration subsequently described by a member of the government as an expression of patriotic values. Derek Scali, our Berlin correspondent, has been monitoring events in Poland and reports from there frequently, and he joins me now. Derek, some 60,000 people took part in this march on Sunday to mark the achievement of, of Polish independence in 1918. What message were they conveying? Well, I think it's important to point out that uh, Independence Day in Poland, uh, this is the moment when Poland returned to the European map after 
after years, uh, centuries of partition between Prussia and Germany and then uh, Russia. Um, this is a big day and not everyone on the streets uh, on Saturday was a right-wing extremist. But unfortunately, in the crowd, uh, we're, we're guessing estimates range between 30 and 60,000 on the streets of Warsaw. There were uh, large groups of uh, young men carrying banners, um, waving red uh, red flares and the banners had all sorts of problematic slogans like white Europe or pure blood um, and uh, slogans people were shouting slogans like a white Europe of fraternal nations and death to the enemies of the fatherland and um, one one member from a group called the all Polish youth declared with a megaphone a person with black skin is not a pole. So even if these were a minority in this group of between 30 and 60,000 on the streets of Warsaw, it certainly sends out a worrying signal. Israel has expressed this concern and demanded the Polish government react quickly and firmly to racist agitation. But the Polish government really doesn't see that there was a problem. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned parallels have been drawn, actually, with the march by white supremacists in in Charlottesville in Virginia last August. And not so much the march itself, but the the failure or at least the reluctance of people in power to condemn it. And Donald Trump in the Charlottesville case. Um, And I I alluded there to the comment of the Polish interior minister at the outset. What did he have to say about the march? Yes, he said he had seen um, he had he had seen what he wanted to see. He said we can see the white red flags in the streets of Warsaw. It was it was a pretty sight. But when he was quizzed about these white Europe and pure blood banners, um, uh, the uh, interior minister, Mariusz Blachek, said he had not seen them personally. Uh, in the days since, the foreign ministry has come out saying uh, that uh, this is obviously, it's unfair to p- put everyone in the same boat. Uh, the president, Andrzej Duda, said, yes, there were some problematic banners, but you can't use that to condemn all marches as Nazis. Now, this has been uh, contradicted by the opposition. And they've said, this is not just a few black sheep or a few uh, a few aliens who sort of came from outer space and landed in Warsaw on Saturday. They see uh, this is the fruit of the politics of the leading peace party, Law and Justice. This is the National Conservative Party referred to who come to power uh, two years ago. They uh, have a very strident uh, National Conservative line. They believe they have a monopoly on this. Uh, And they also have quite a strong youth movement. And the opposition parties say this youth movement um, uh, practices or takes to extremes what they call the politics of hate, that peace and that that the Law and Justice Party uh, practice towards minorities uh, in, in their politics. And of course, the march, Derek, and the response to it, they're, they're just kind of one manifestation of the disconnect, if you like, that seems to have emerged between Poland and, and many of its EU partners. For people who haven't followed the story closely, can you can you give us a picture of the current political situation in Poland and, and, and what in particular has brought Warsaw into a kind of conflict with Brussels? Well, what's happened is that um, the Law and Justice Party won an absolute majority two years ago. They're a national conservative. Party, uh, they believe that uh, Poland uh, needs to uh, shake off the last vestiges of uh, the the transition arrangements that came in after communism. They believe that the ordinary poles were sold down the river by a, a carve up between uh, the old communists and a sort of liberal elite uh, 
that came in and have been ruling polls uh, to the detriment of the majority and to feather their own nest for the last 25 years. That's the that's the narrative. And to some extent, that has chimed with ordinary polls' experiences because they say, yes, standards of living are rising in the big cities, but wages are not rising, costs are rising. Uh, this whole liberal dream has failed to yield the fruit we were promised. And uh, we've had lots of deregulation, but uh, lots of rises in poverty as well. So uh, Mr. Jarosław Kaczynski, he's the, the mastermind of the Law and Justice Party. Two years on, um, Mr. Kaczynski's party is very popular. They've introduced um, you know, extra payments, extra child allowance payments. They say that they're on the side of the, the small guy. And, and they would say, look, we there are some problematic strains in, uh, in Polish politics or strands in Polish politics, but they've sort of brought that into the political mainstream and kept it within this national conservative right-wing party. And Mr. Kaczynski is certainly no anti-Semite, but perhaps uh, he's not shy of exploding uh, xenophobia and fear of refugees for political gain. So this is where we stand. Uh, what they've also done is uh, every institution that wasn't under the direct control, the critics say, they've been working hard to uh, to bring under the control directly or indirectly. It started with a Polish uh, television state broadcaster, which is now very pro-government uh, uh, broadcaster. The state prosecutor, uh, which was one of an independent institution, is now inside the Justice Ministry. And this has continued right up to the judiciary, to the highest courts. And this is where Poland has come under attack from, uh, from the European Union, from the European Commission. And they say that uh, you cannot fill a court with your own uh, political appointees. This completely undermines uh, the separation of powers in a democracy, and that is out of step with European values. Now, the Polish government say we were just reforming, like lots of countries reformed their judiciary, and uh, our judiciary is nothing, uh, nothing to do with Brussels back off. So that's where we've been for the last 18 months in this judicial standoff, and, um, and the Polish government sees no reason to stand down. And can you explain that, sorry, Derek, in a bit more detail, this, this judicial reform? I mean, they say they're sort of reforming communist, a uh, communist era system. Um, what exactly um, is the government doing and what is Brussels doing about it in response? Well, this is the second time that law and justice have been in power. And the last time they were in power a decade ago, they complained that every time they had any legislation, the constitutional court would, uh, would halt it and say, this is uh, at odds with the constitution. And the government said, well, we're elected to introduce legislation legislation that court is a, is a bunch of cronies responsible to nobody. There's no political uh, control and they are setting themselves up as sort of a counter or an anti or an alternative government. So as soon as they got into power two years ago, they began to work to dismantle how the court worked, its daily, in its, both in its daily um, procedures, but also in its appointment system. They appointed their own judges in procedures many people think were illegal. And they conducted a, a long, lengthy campaign against the court against the judges. And this is why uh, the European Commission vice president has said we see a systemic threat to the rule of law in Poland because the judicial system they fear has now become uh, subordinate to uh, the political system. And Derek, you mentioned there the, the, the fact the government has taken control of, of state media. Now, there's also talk of an overhaul of, of media regulation, which I presume would affect uh, private media. Um, do we know what's, what's planned there and what's coming down the tracks? 
even before the Law and Justice Party came to government, uh, they were claiming that there was far too much foreign-owned media in Poland, and particularly Germany's Springer Group, and they've been claiming uh, they are reporting in an anti-Polish, anti-patriotic way, and that this is not in Poland's national interest, and they would like to, uh, in some way, move in to impose some sort of a, a Polish majority on this. I'm not sure of the details, uh, but what I do know is that anyone who tried to and private property rights would have Brussels to answer uh, to on that front as well. On a second front, Jarosław Kaczynski, the, the chairman of the Law and Justice ruling party, he has come out uh, claiming, uh, raising the old issue of reparations, uh, German reparations that were never paid to Poland after the war. The Polish uh, communist government in the 1950s, uh, they uh, decided they didn't want any reparations, and that's been repeated twice since 1990. But uh, Mr. Kaczynski raises this on a regular basis. He claims this isn't about theater, this is about Polish pride and um, uh, this is about writing a historical wrong. We'll see if anything comes of that or efforts to uh, intervene on foreign-owned media. And finally, Derek, just to wrap, you mentioned Mr. Kaczynski there. There is some speculation. Um, I mean, he's kind of seen as the power of in the land anyway, but there's speculation that he, he may be about to... Um, shoulder the Prime Minister Beata uh, Sidlow aside and, and, and assume the reins of power himself. Do you think that's likely um, or is that just uh, media gossip? Well, it seems quite likely. There is definitely talk there will be a will be a government, a cabinet shakeup in the weeks to come. And uh, Mr. Kaczynski does have some form in this uh, regard. Last time around, uh, he had a, a, a some would say a sort of a puppet prime minister in power for a while, while he was pulling the strings in the background, and then he eventually moved in himself. Beata Shidwo has been a steady pair of hands. But and the feeling is that Mr. Kaczynski is rearing to go and take control. He's had all the influence and had none of the political responsibility. So some people would say um, it's in his interest to remain in the background. Uh, but other people say uh, he would like to move into uh, into the front line, which, of course, would probably make life complicated for Poland and its relationships uh, with its European neighbours. OK, well, we'll see what happens there. Derek Scali, thanks a lot for that. That's all for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.